nightmare. Uh, at least it wasn't the restroom. If you heard me blow my nose. I've got sniffles, I'm sorry. So um, we are quickly coming to an end of our survey of the book of Exodus. We've reached chapter 36, and you might want to uh, turn there now. This is the penultimate sermon on the book. I never heard that word until I was learning Greek. Uh, it was is in the context of syllables. The ultimate, the last syllable in the word is the ultima, and the, the one before that is the penultima. So the, the penultimate sermon means we're going to have one more sermon after this on the book of Exodus, and then we're going to dive into 1 Samuel together. We've looked at the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant and uh, when we went through Genesis, and now we've seen the role of Moses and the addition of the law. And, and now then we're going to now we're going to look at David and the establishment of the Davidic covenant. Uh, I know that's the third Old Testament book in a row, but you know, you understand the New Testament so much better when you know your Old Testament. So I think it's good for us. And uh, besides, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus suffering, resurrection, and establishment of his church. So we've had plenty of opportunities as we've gone along to open our New Testaments. Um, okay, Clark, I get that. That's cool. But two sermons left. I'm looking ahead, and there's five chapters. What are you going to do? Two and a half chapters a sermon? Oh, my. No, it's worse than that. I'm going to cover four of those chapters this morning, leaving one chapter for next week. Uh, I hope you've already turned there in your Bibles, but if you look ahead, you'll see that only two things happen now. Uh, we've talked about the tabernacle in some detail as those, deta those details were given to Moses at, uh, in instruction on the mountain, and but those plans were interrupted by that golden calf episode, Israel's infidelity. Uh, and then Moses interceded, grounding his plea in God's own character as he reveals to us his name and the meaning of his name. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Moses clings to God's own character in his plea that God would go in their midst, that God, El, would be with us, Immanu, Immanuel, God with us. And last week, Jeff carried us through um, the first step. Uh, the, the tabernacle project is going to go forward, and the first step is taking a contribution. Um, God reveals that his craftsmen are the same, Bezalel and Aholiab, only adding that they will be gifted to teach. And that emphasizes one of the things that is evident in that contribution. The most important emphasis, uh, as Jeff noted, is the voluntary nature of this. Uh, and, and, and that's even in service of this larger emphasis. We build the church. Yes, we are the living stones that are built together to be a dwelling place for the Lord, but we are also the laborers and the contributors. You know, everyone who had brought. 
If it was wood, they brought wood. If it was gold, gold. If it was time and effort, that's what they gave. Everyone contributed. Everyone labored, men and women. I know it's voluntary, and I know that God's Spirit moved those who gave and those who served, but, but the description seems to indicate that everybody pitched in. In, in fact, as we dive into our passage for this morning, we find that, you know, we find it's every session's dream. The people give too much, more than is needed, and they have to be commanded to stop giving. Let's read it. Exodus 36, 1 to 7. Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in, whose, in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Now, I don't want to dwell on this. This is the sort of uh, passage that you're supposed to assign to a guest preacher. Jeff should have known he was supposed to take the first seven verses. The, uh, the people gave so much because they grasped the grace that had just been extended. Do you remember when, when God said, well, you can have the land, but I'm not going with you. What did the people do? They repented. They were distraught. Moses interceded and God relented. Emmanuel, he is going to go with us. And so they had this rare glimpse into the glory of grace and they pour all they can into it. You know, it's different today. And you'd expect it to be. Uh, this was a pivotal moment in redemptive history. Um, this work, as we'll read in chapter 9, was finished. The work of building the church is ongoing. So there are differences. But the grace that God has demonstrated to us, upon whom the end of the ages has come, standing as we do on this side of a bloody cross and an empty tomb, it's greater than the grace that was shown to our forefathers in the wilderness. Most of these people were not truly united with us by faith. And yet, when the Spirit of God lets a little light peek through that veil, they overflow in generosity and service. We're... Uh, running a deficit as a congregation, and we, we struggle to find home group leaders and Sunday school teachers and all sorts of servants. Brothers and sisters, it should not be that way. 
I think if, if we grasp the love of Christ better, we might sacrifice more of who we are and what we have to his kingdom. Now, in verse 8, we begin a long account of the construction of the tabernacle itself. And, and the only difference discernible is the tense of the verb. From the, you know, from the future of an imperative, you shall build, they shall build it this way, to, to the, uh, the preterite, the past tense of, of historical accounting, they built or he built. So rather than taking the rest of our time reading uh, this passage, because it's four chapters, it's long, I'd like to step back and look at the sweep of the whole project. He begins with the curtains, and he moves on to the frames. Now, when you look at the, uh, the inner curtain, you're given a depiction of the heavenly throne room, right? It's blue like heaven, and it's got golden uh, cherubim embroidered in it. And that's the, uh, the basic picture, that, that God's throne is going to be set in the midst of Israel's camp. Remember that when we get into 1 Samuel... And Israel asks for a king. Because very clearly, God is presented as their king in this camp. Now, what I glean from the curtains and the frames is what is so emphasized in, in 1 Corinthians that we are to be united, that there is supposed to be a sameness to us. Uh, listen to Paul for a second, 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. In his second letter, he says to them, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the love of God, the God of love and peace will be with you. Or how about Philippians 4, 2? And you and I have no idea what these two ladies were arguing about, but Paul says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Our unity, our willingness to overlook offenses and, and disagreements, that, that's the goal of the gospel is our unity. They will know that we are Christ's disciples by the love that we have for one another. Now, before the, telling these two ladies to, to agree, this is what Paul had said in chapter 2. We just read it. So if there's any comfort in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And he goes on to say that we have the mind of Christ who humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. So since this mind is yours... Have it among yourselves. Have this mindset among yourselves to love one another. Likewise, the, uh, the frames are about our 
united, though unique, services. You know, not all the frames are the same, and yet this, this tabernacle will not stand unless all the frames are in place. Well, instead of unique, I should call them specialized. Not all the frames are the same. Like, likewise, Paul says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. To each of you has been given manifestation of the Spirit for our common good. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members are of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were made to drink of one Spirit. So then we go on to the veil when, the, when they construct the veil in verses 35 to 38 of chapter 6, the veil is going to separate the, the holy place from the most holy place. And, and the book of Hebrews tells us that the, the holy place represented the present age. Now, I can't know for sure which of those veils tore when Jesus died, but it just makes so much sense theologically for it not to be this veil but the veil to the door of the temple. I say that because you and I are in the overlap of the ages. We are clearly told that we have all the benefits of the new age now. And yet we don't have their full expression. We've got victory over sin, and yet we still experience sin and death. When Christ comes... That ends. So, so we've, we've gained unfettered access to the daily provision, that table of showbread, and to the illumination of the Spirit, that lampstand. We are priests, but we still do not see God. We still await Christ's return. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Jesus is the door and he comes twice. Since there are two doors in the tabernacle, it makes sense to me that it's the first door. But it doesn't matter because the entire tabernacle or temple pales before the fulfillment in Christ Jesus. The tabernacle was pointing to Jesus. And as we turn to the Ark of the Covenant in, in chapter 37, we're reminded not only that this is going to represent God's presence among his people, but we're, we're reminded of a number of things about that. First, there's no, this isn't an image of any creature, whether in heaven or on earth or beneath the earth. They didn't see what God looked like. This is a box. It's a gloriously beautiful box, but it's a box. And as a box, it's consistently called the Ark of the Testimony. The Ten Commandments were given on tablets of the test, uh, they were the tablets of the testimony, and they're put in this box, along with the manna and Aaron's staff. All these are reminders of God's covenant, of his covenant faithfulness. He guards us, he guides us, he, he commands us, he provides for us, he protects us. You know, just as you and I bear testimony of God's grace because you and I have the ark within us, 
at least in a preliminary way, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so we bear witness. We share the gospel. We let our lights shine before men. But that box had a lid, the place of mercy. You can call it a seat if you like, but you're not, it's not a sit-down seat like a chair. It's more like a county seat. It's the, the place where mercy resides. The earth is God's footstool, and he is enthroned on the cherubim, not sitting on the, on the mercy seat. And cherubim are, in fact, they're part of the ark, but they are, are over this place of mercy, looking down on it, intently at it. What are they looking at? What's on this golden slab that covers the ark? The blood of the sacrifice. They're looking at the atoning blood. That's the marvel of redemption, redemptive history, that God, who is a who, who was who's offended by our sin, died for us and opened our eyes to the offensiveness of our sin and the need for, for redemption. You know, even as Peter tells us, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And then we get to the, the bread of the presence and the lampstand. You know, the, the presence of God is the bread, by the way. Um, you remember when in the wake of the, um, the Samaritan woman uh, story in John 4, um, we read this. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, uh, Rabbi, eat something. So, so they know he should be hungry, physically hungry, uh, and, and so he takes this opportunity, he said, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He goes on to speak after that of the great harvest of souls of which we are a part. That's the work he's talking about. That work is somehow Food for Jesus. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. You know, so often in the scriptures, food is given for the purpose of service. You know, soon we're going to read about um, Saul troubling Israel by declaring a fast. God had provided honey, but Saul's army was deprived of it, and so the victory was not great. Or how about when Elijah has that great showdown with the prophets of Baal, right? He calls down fire from heaven. And then Jezebel threatens him, and he flees. Do you remember that? 
Then he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. You know, every day the people in the wilderness, our forefathers to whom this is written, are reminded of God's provision. And even after the manna stops, when they get into the land and and eat the produce of the land, there's always this reminder, this testimony in the tabernacle or the temple. And likewise... You and I, we are sustained physically and spiritually by God's gracious love and his kindness. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. His mercies are new every morning, like fresh bread. And he is the light of life embodied in the lampstand. The lamp itself is reminiscent of the tree of life. Light and life are related concepts in the scriptures. And Jesus is the light. Undoubtedly, that's why light was created first, to reflect the preeminence that Jesus is going to have. You know, our forefathers could see a pillar of cloud demonstrating God's guidance through the illumination, but, you know, ever afterwards, there would be a reminder, a testimony in the tabernacle, testimony for the priests. And you and I still, just as we have the daily bread of God's provision physically and spiritually, so we have the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ and with unveiled faces, we behold that glory. As he's revealed to us in the scriptures, illuminated for us by the Holy Spirit, he's the spirit who dwells within us. We've been declared holy a suitable dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. We have the light of God's presence within us. The ark and the altar of incense are intimately connected. The altar of incense and the altar of atonement are also intimately connected. You take the coals from the altar of the burnt offering, that's holy fire. You take it sanctified by that holy fire and, and, and you bring those coals in for the the altar of incense, which is by the ark. That sweet smell is said to represent our prayer. So we're getting a picture of God providing for guiding, speaking to, and even listening to his people. And yet, we have to remember that separation that was prominent as we went through this description of the tabernacle. You know, not everyone is allowed in the tent at all, only priests. And and only the priest on duty, really. It's not like it's a priest lounge. And only the high priest could go into that back room and only once a year with blood. 
that holiness, that sanctification was evident in the whole structure. Sure, you had the blue linen with the gold cherubim there in it representing heaven, but that's covered. You can't see that from outside. It's covered with goat hair. Nevertheless, the average Israelite could experience something of the glory of that place by seeing the high priest perform his duties on a high holy day because everything in the tabernacle was represented on the priest's clothes. He bears the people on his heart. Remember that ephod with the stones representing each tribe? He bears the the people on his shoulders. Remember the epaulets where, where six names are on here and six names are on here? And he bears the people on their head, holy to the Lord. Isaiah, in Isaiah, the Lord's going to say, Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. So he's on hands, heart, shoulders, head. He calls you by name. He'll even give you a new name. But he loves you and he cares for you particularly. Let's jump to the end, verses, uh, chapter 39, verse 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, its bases, the covering of the tanned ram skins and goat skins, and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, and the table with its utensils, and the bread of the presence, and the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps, and with the lamps set, and all its utensils, and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the altar, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar, and the grating of bronze, grating of bronze excuse me, tongue-tied, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the courts, its pillars and its bases, the stage, the screen for the, the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for the service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, that they, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. We're going to hear Moses' blessing next week before the Lord descends and and fills this tabernacle with his glory. But that takes us right up to the end of the book. And since this sermon is is something of a a survey, a reminder uh, of what we covered as we went through those parts of the tabernacle, I thought it might be helpful for us to step back and look more broadly at where we've come. A year ago, if I'd asked you, what was the book of Exodus about? what would you have said? You'd probably say it was about God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. And the most prominent thing in your minds would have probably been the plagues. The deliverance from slavery in Egypt was the great depiction of what Christ would come to do. And it becomes the the chief redemptive picture But this book has 40 chapters. And the Exodus really only takes us through chapter 12. Chapter 15, if you account the crossing of the Red Sea and them singing about it. 
The rest of the book is about God's presence with his people. We have the rules God has for dwelling with his people. That occupies some space with the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant. But as soon as Moses goes back up the mountain, he's told, God starts telling him about the tabernacle. This is the tent through which God is going to dwell with his people. And each part was critical for telling the story of what Christ was going to ultimately do. This tabernacle had to be made just according to the pattern shown Moses on the mountain because it was a picture of the gospel containing both the glory of God and redemptive pictures, but also showing the problem that would be overcome by the cross of Christ. God is holy. His people are sinners. In fact, just when the description of the tabernacle is finished, we get the golden calf episode, throwing the whole project into question. But again, we get a picture of redemption. We get a revelation of who God is. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He, forgive, he shows favor to thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, he's made a way for the sinner to be cleansed, no longer guilty but redeemed. And the fact that they do build this tabernacle, as we'll see next week, you know, the fact that God does fill it with his glory means that the promise still stands. You and I have seen the fulfillment of that promise. And now you and I have a task. A task not unlike our forefathers in, in the wilderness as they built the tabernacle, except we're not working with wood and precious metals. We're working with souls, living stones. And our task won't be complete until Christ returns, or actually the way it's put in the scriptures is the reverse. When the gospel has gone out throughout the whole world, then the end will come. Of course, I think there's an obvious application in that collection and how abundantly generous our forefathers were when all they had were shadowy pictures of grace. We're running a deficit. We can give more. Disciple more givers or both? But I think we ought to recognize that more than half of this book is about how to worship God. It's almost like a Pauline letter. The first part's sort of the indicative. God delivers them. And then the second part's kind of the imperative. It tells them how to worship him. And, and how is that? By so abounding in love for God that it overflows in love for one another. A love that overlooks offenses and disagreements when we can so that we can all, with one voice, glorify our God and Savior. And working together, as each of us is gifted, we, like our forefathers, actually participate in building the church. Next week, the glory of God will fill this tent but for now, let us thank him for all its parts. Will you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you even for this revelation of this tent in the wilderness because of the, the light that it casts on what you did in Jesus Christ. We are so grateful, Lord, not only that you brought us out of Egypt, out of slavery to sin and death, but that you bear us on eagles' wings and that you, you write your law on our hearts. Father, we do confess that we fall so far short of the glory that you've revealed in us and to us. We ask, Lord, that you would, that you would help us to strive toward the calling you've given us. Help us to live up to such a high calling, Lord, for Christ's sake. For Christ's glory, we ask it in his name. Amen. Please rise.